Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... It's really good at colonising new habitats, so they don't bite their prey, they spray formic acid, so they blind their prey and then they attack. Crazy yellow ants. They're highly aggressive and they're forming super colonies in our backyards, killing off native lizards, frogs and our sugarcane farms are at risk as well. We find out what is Australia's strategy to help cope with these invasive ants. Stay tuned for all of this and more coming up on The Wire. Today marks the release of the Albanese government's new 2023-2030 to Australian cybersecurity strategy. In the wake of Medibank, Australian National University and Optus data breaches, federal government has allocated $590 million on top of the $2.3 billion already committed to funding, to funding cybersecurity efforts. The new cybersecurity strategy has a strong focus on ransomware, the kind of cyber attack that holds data and access hostage from users. Stephen Samaras has the story. Minister O'Neill's address earlier today went over the principles of the new cybersecurity strategy, emphasising the growing national security threat. There was also an emphasis on learning from previous cyber attacks and incorporating new defence strategies. If we have learned anything in the last year in this country, it is that we cannot continue as we have. We can't have a situation where we've got data flying around the country, where we've got critical infrastructure starting to fail, where we've got small business and citizens who are consistently telling us that they feel vulnerable and unable to cope with the cyber threats themselves. Our cyber strategy being released today is about a pathway out of that. We have spent the first 18 months that we've been in government catching up waking out of that cyber slumber and catching up to where we should already have been, the launch of today's document is really about the future because we know that as bad as the cyber environment is for us right now, we have reason to believe that things are going to get worse and that we are going to face increasing risk. We know that because we see technological change creating new opportunities for cybersecurity threats. We know that because the Internet of Things is going to bring billions more devices online by 2030. And we know that because we are in a geopolitical environment that is the most challenging that Australia has faced since since the Second World War. That's why we need a better way of managing this problem. And that's what today's cyber strategy is about. The goal of this strategy is not to reduce cyber risk to zero, and we need to be really clear about that. There is no politician in the world, no politician in our country, who can look their citizens in the eye and say that we're not going to have any more cyber attacks. There is no public policy option here that reduces cyber cyber risk to zero. What we do need to do is make sure that we're making our country a harder target, that we're fighting back against cyber criminals who are seeking to do us harm and that we're building a bounce back so that when we do get hit by cyber attacks, small businesses and citizens can get back up off the mat and where critical infrastructure is the target, the country can continue to function while the cyber incident is resolved. I spoke with Dr Matt Warren, the director of the RMIT University Centre for Cybersecurity Research and Innovation, about the cybersecurity strategy and about what it means for Australians. What I think it will do is uh, help protect us uh, 
in an ever-changing environment. I think what's different with this strategy is it's actually looking at a whole of country perspective in terms of critical infrastructure, in terms of government, in terms of small businesses and individual citizens. I think, you know, this strategy is very much focused, you know, on protecting all aspects of the country. And I think the important inclusion is the focus in small businesses in this strategy, because in the past, they're often overlooked. Why is a plan or policy such as this one important for cybersecurity in Australia? It's important because it ties in with government expenditure, government projects, uh, future government uh, initiatives. And I think what's also very different with this policy is it actually defines what success looks like um, in the six domains they call cyber shield, uh, you know, that they've sort of identified. So it actually, uh, in terms of a strategy, clearly identifies, you know, what a successful strategy would be. But again, it's very important, uh, you know, from a government perspective in terms of, you know, linking and relating to all the different parts of government, you know, to work towards sort of common purpose. How does policy such as this bolster Australian cybersecurity? Aren't there ways for all of these kind of security methods to be circumvented or penetrated? The the issue is now cybersecurity is such a complex issue that we need a whole of nation uh, focus. So what this does is it identifies the key priority areas. It also links to funding and future funding, but also links to, you know, the future aspirations of the country in terms of, you know, developing our national cyber, uh, you know, uh, capability uh, and uh, resilience. So again, what the strategy is, is actually an important way of bringing together all the different aspects of activity that's currently being undertaken to define, you know, a forward-looking plan as well. Are there any flaws that you can identify with the plan as it is? Well, again, it's a very detailed plan. And again, it sort of identified three phases for implementation, which they call horizon. So horizon one, two, and three. If anything, there's actually a lot to be done, uh, you know, uh, uh, between now and uh, 2030. So again, I suppose, you know, because it's such a complex some such a complex plan and there's so many aspects that have to be done is you know ensuring that it can all be done within the time scale dr matthew warren professor of Cybersecurity and director of the rmit university center for Cybersecurity research and innovation there speaking with stephen samaras hi i'm ray martin you're listening to the wire on community and Indigenous radio right across Australia. Stay well. Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus announced reforms to the secrecy legislation that aims to harmonise the vast array of laws in regards to the protection of information. Stephen Hill asked Kieran Pender, senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, to explain the new secrecy laws and whether the changes provide an adequate framework to protect whistleblowers. 
so a really significant step forward yesterday from the federal government with a discussion paper in relation to reform of Australia's secrecy laws. Of course, in any democracy, you need to strike the right balance between secrecy and transparency. And for a decade in Australia, we've had the laws going too far in favour of secrecy and not enough protection for transparency. The review yesterday will do a few things. Firstly, they're going to harmonise secrecy offences. We have almost a 1,000 secrecy offences on the Commonwealth law books, which is far too many. There's not enough consistency, and so the government's committed to proceeding with that. The Attorney-General also announced that he will enshrine in statute an existing ministerial direction that prosecutions against journalists in relation to secrecy offences can only be brought with the Attorney-General's consent, something that the former Attorney-General Christian Porter brought in after the raids on ABC and News Corp. That's the good news. Unfortunately, there's also some bad news. The government, in a number of respects, has refused to go further There are a number of things that groups like the Human Rights Law Centre and others have called for to better strike that balance between secrecy and transparency, and unfortunately the government has not committed to doing those things. So it's a step forward, but in our view it doesn't go far enough. I would just say that this will have some concerns about the way in which public information is disseminated, that there remain too many boundaries still implicit in these secrecy laws? Yeah, these changes announced by the attorney don't go far enough. And to give a few examples, currently the laws have really disproportionate penalties, so there was a really significant heightening of secrecy offences under the Turnbull government that took uh, penalties that existed that were often sort of two years maximum imprisonment up to five or ten years. We and other groups at the time said so that was incredibly disproportionate, and unfortunately the government has so far refused to back down uh, and is committed to keeping the the levels of the offences as they are. Another really significant concern, obviously you have typically a range of avenues for disclosure. You might have whistleblowing law, uh, the ability to go to different regulatory bodies. However, the Human Rights Law Centre, the Law Council and other groups have said we need a fail-safe defence of public interest. At the end of the day, if you don't quite tick the right boxes of blowing the whistle lawfully, say, ultimately you should be able to say, notwithstanding that, I blew the whistle in the public interest. The documents that I exposed, for example, that were protected by secrecy law were in the public interest to be exposed. And that should be a defence from prosecution. Uh, That is the case in some other countries, for example, in Denmark. Unfortunately, the government hasn't committed to that. So, you know, there's a number of other areas where the balance at the moment between secrecy and transparency is tilted too far in the favour of opacity. um, And we call on the government to uh, go further than what they announced uh, this week. Have there been any changes for greater protection to people who don't receive information in an official government capacity, so journalists and public interest advocates? Have the have the reforms that were announced yesterday offered improvement in any of those fields? Separate to the reforms announced yesterday, the government has committed a significant phase of whistleblowing reform in the year ahead, including consideration of whether to establish a dedicated whistleblower protection authority. That's really significant reform that we really need to see progress. And we really need to look at all of this in the wider context. None of these issues operate on their own in silos, whistleblowing, secrecy, transparency, FOI law and so on are all part of a bigger picture. And we really need to see further commitment from the government 
government to recalibrating that picture and ensuring that transparency is protected in Australia. Because otherwise, what is happening in our democracy that we don't know about because secrecy law is covering up wrongdoing? According to a submission that was made by the Human Rights Law Centre, you mentioned that you were concerned about the threshold for prosecution of secrecy crime is too low and you suggested that the state should have to prove serious harm when it comes to disclosure of information. What, what, what do you think should be the adequate threshold for, for prosecution? One of the other concerns with the announcement yesterday was that the government has said it's going to establish a new secrecy offence that applies in cases of damage to the efficiency of government, which we think is a far too low threshold. Thankfully, in terms of general principles that the paper is based on, they've agreed with us and others that harm has to be a key part. One of the problems with secrecy law was harm wasn't a proven requirement. And so leaking a document that was classified even in the public interest, even where it caused no harm or there's no risk of harm, could still be criminalised. So it's really it's a welcome step. The government's recognised the importance of a harm requirement, um, but we're concerned that they haven't taken that far enough. These issues are, of course, it's a challenge to get the right balance. You know, I'm not a, a transparency absolutist in government. There is a proper place for secrecy, but only when it's proportionate, necessary and justified and you have appropriate safeguards and oversight. And at the moment, we don't have that. Kieran Pender, Senior Lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, speaking there with Stephen Hill. The Optus CEO, Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin, has resigned after the nationwide network outage, which left almost half of the country without phone or internet for 12 hours. The company has been put under mounting pressure after experiencing two of the most significant cybersecurity issues within the last 14 months, following the data breach that affected up to 9.7 million people in September 2022. David Chuang has this report. The Optus CEO announced her resignation on Monday, not long after rebuffing suggestions she was under pressure to step down in a Senate inquiry last week. Kelly Bayer Rosemary's time in the Optus chair hasn't been easy, as she led the company through two of the greatest telecommunication disasters the nation has ever seen. The data breach in September 2022 and the latest nationwide outage on the 8th of November. What will this mean to Optus and what can we learn from this incident? I spoke to Associate Professor Mark Gregory from the School of Engineering at RMIT University. I asked him whether the Optus CEO has made the right decision. I believe the decision by the Optus CEO, Ms. Bayer Rosmarin, to resign was um, a positive step. Um, it provides the opportunity for the company to put in place a new management team and, and to adopt a new direction at this time. We know that Kelly Bayer Rosemary announced her re- uh, resignation in a Senate inquiry this morning, and a few months ago, former Qantas CEO also resigned out of his job before attending a Senate inquiry. So, what effect do you think the government pressure is playing in Bayer Rosemary's decision to resign? 
I believe that it's positive that the Senate inquiries are paying particular attention to the key issues that are affecting Australians and Australian consumers. We need to have confidence that the government is... What do you think will be the influence of, of Optus' national reputation after the recent network outage and the data breach back in September last year? Well, I believe that the resignation of the CEO, Ms. Bayer Rosmarin, will provide an opportunity for Optus to reset its relationship with consumers. But this is really contingent on Optus going back and looking at what's happened over the last week, trying to clear the air and ensuring that they talk to their customers and also, you know, look at the idea of reducing their customers' bills in the next month to give them financial relief related to the outage. They need to discuss financial compensation with the 400,000 business customers that they have and they really need to, to look at what happened from their customers' perspective, not from the company's perspective or the shareholders' perspective. They need to look at it from the consumer's point of view. How much influence do you think the outage caused to the nation, both to our residents or businesses? Well, I think the outage um, that occurred has meant that Optus has really put itself um, into a place that broader consumers in Australia will uh, be considering looking at their relationship with Optus. We need to remember that this was a national outage, something which is unthinkable, you know, in this time when we rely upon telecommunications for everything that we do in our daily life. Um, and for that to happen, there needs to be there needs to be a complete rethink of the um, situation within the company. There needs to be a complete rethink from regular point of view and also from um, the consumer's perspective. Consumers need to know that there will be procedures and practices put in place to prevent this type of outage from happening again. Where do you think the future holds for Optus and Australian telecommunications industry? I think that the uh, relationship between Optus and Singtel um, needs to be looked at very carefully by the government. The messaging from Optus and Singtel over the last week really has meant that there are more questions than answers. Uh, and so we need to know that uh, Optus was being operated, run and managed by um, people um, in Australia. This is uh, an essential service. Uh, this is an Australian company. And the idea that there's a, a possibility of that company being operated by people from a parent company um, in another country and that company being part owned by a foreign government is unthinkable. I mean, if we remember, that's why the government banned Huawei, wasn't it? Leading an organisation like Optus through challenging times is very tough. But what can Ms. Bayer's Marist Quit tell us about leadership in a time of crisis? This is Alex Haslam, Professor of Psychology and Laurie Fellow at the University of Queensland. I think there's a lot of other things that are sort of going on here. The most basic thing is that when organisations succeed or when they fail, we often attribute that to the performance of their leaders. Now, one of the questions is whether that's entirely fair or reasonable. But I think one of the consequences of the way that organisations are run today, for big organisations, is when they succeed, we attribute that to their leaders. And, and as a result, we pay them very large amounts of money based on that kind of analysis. And it follows from that that if they perform poorly, we should also punish them by, you know, firing them. To be honest, I think both of those reactions are somewhat problematic. I think it's pretty clear that when organisations succeed, it's not only because of their leadership, it's because of what their employees do. And I think the same is true of their when they fail. Um, and, and I think there are some big problems with imagining and acting as if it were the case that it's only ever leaders who are responsible for success and failure. And I think that is 
just as I think in a, in a particular sense, it is a faulty analysis to say that she is entirely for, to blame for this and therefore has to go. Uh, so, too, I think it's a mistake to see that leaders are, are only ever responsible for success and that maybe we should pull back from both of those judgments because I think they're both problematic in particular ways um, because they don't actually allow us to see what's really going on and to and to think about how organizations could be run better more generally and how leadership indeed could be understood better rather than just imagining that you know these are organizations where all that matters is what the person at the top is doing. What do you think are the key leadership qualities that can help a leader to manage your organization in a time of crisis? One is understanding, as I've just said, that, that leadership isn't just something that one person is going to do, that everybody in a way is going to need to be doing leadership. But in particular, then those people who are in leadership positions need to be focused on, if you like, the we of the organization and, and cultivating that sense of shared identity and purpose rather than be fixated on their own leadership and the me of leadership. And all of our research suggests very clearly that unless you get that we thing going as a leader then and if you make it all about me then that's going to be kind of problematic and then it's going to come unstuck so what you saw in the pandemic but what you see pretty much around the world in in all manner of crises is that leadership that taps into and builds that sense of shared identity and purpose is the thing that gets groups and communities and societies through but leadership that focuses on 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 me the leader and what i'm like and my style and you know uh, is is often problematic Alex Haslam, Professor of Psychology and Laureate Fellow at the University of Queensland, speaking there with David Zhuang. Whenever I want to catch up with current affairs in Australia, I head to thewire.org.au or I follow them on Twitter. I just search for The Wire Radio, all one word. And yes, they're on Facebook too. Australia is under attack from the aggressive crazy yellow ant species. These little super tramps have made their way through our ports and they're hitting super colony levels, leaving Queensland's tropical rainforests and northern Australia silent in their wake. Francis Du asked Dr Cecilia Villacorta-Rath, a senior research officer at James Cook University, just what were the risks crazy yellow ants pose if they're not stopped in their tracks? Yellow crazy ants is a very aggressive species and it's highly invasive. It's really good at colonizing new habitats. So they don't bite their prey. They spray formic acid. So they blind their prey and then they attack. And because they form, they can swarm in really high numbers because they form this thing called super colony. So it means that one colony has several queens and therefore those several queens are producing lots of babies and the colonies can increase numbers really quickly. So when they prey on whatever native animal there is in the area, they can swarm in really high numbers. And they go for um, larger animals such as lizards, frogs, small mammals, turtles, turtles, um, hatchings, bird chicks. Um, So they can reshape entire ecosystems. Are they also harmful to humans too? Yes, they can be harmful to humans, not in the same way as um, to other animals, but they can be harmful because they can, if they come into your property, they can colonize really quickly, and then your your house can become inhabitable um, if left unattended. What's the scale of the problem? Look, there was an independent review done, done by Melbourne Uni 
um, that they were saying that if in the wet tropics uh, World Heritage Area, which is near Cairns, if the managing authority was not doing any eradication program, uh, program, the socioeconomic costs in the region would exceed $500 million over the next 30 years, just to put in context how, how bad it would be. And, of course, um, it would also affect tourism. Um, and, and in the wet tropics uh, World Heritage uh, Rainforest region, the tourism industry is about uh, worth $2 billion per year. And could this lead to extinction for our native animals? Yes, in Christmas Island, they were they came. That was the first incursion into Australia, and they decimated the population of native crabs. Do we know why they're in Australia, and where where do they come from? Yeah, unfortunately, they come through ports, and that's something that um, is hard to control because in containers they can be hiding, so they arrive into into the country. Um, however, they, there is also translocation by humans. Um, so, for example, if you live in an area where there are yellow crazy ants and you move houses to another area and you bring your pots, then the ants can be in the pots, for example. Or um, if there is an illegal dumping in any, from a place where there is um, yellow crazy ants into another one, then that's how these ants start um, going into new areas. Mm-hmm. And what parts of Australia are we mostly seeing these ants proliferating right now? At the moment, Queensland, Northern Territory, and uh, New South Wales. How do we stop the spread then? Just uh, two ways. Early detection is really important because these ants are so good at colonizing new areas. Bef- we need to catch them before they start forming their super colonies and being really hard to to control. And the second measure is what um, the, the managing authority in different areas is conducting at the moment, which is eradication programs. So spraying insecticide at different times of the year to, um, to kill them. Early detection sounds promising. Is that something you're developing in your line of work? So James Cook University is trialing a new technique called environmental DNA or eDNA short, which consists on detecting the genetic footprint of an animal. So if the ants have been inhabiting an area, they're going to be shedding um, genetic material in the form of um, dead cells or dead animals into the ground. And because in particular these yellow crazy ants, they like nesting nearby water bodies, then when the rain uh, falls over um, the, the area where the infestation is, the rain is aggregating that eDNA and bringing it into the water body. So we can come collect water from certain creeks or rivers adjacent to infestations, and we can detect them. So the eDNA can be um, an early detection tool, and we are trying to determine um, the times um, and the amount of rainfall and other factors that are contributing to the detectability of these ants. And how effective are the eradication programs you mentioned earlier? Um, because of that human component of the translocation, there are new infestations popping up in other places. So on one hand, eradication programs work really well, but we also need to educate the people about the, um, the risks of um, translocating these ants. Dr Cecilia Villacorta-Rath at James Cook University speaking there with Francis Du.
And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcast around the nation on the Community Radio Network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal Country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company. Music